0: State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Tim Geenan, General Manager of Factor at LiveRamp, about the state of privacy and consent management. Factor is a consent management platform that delivers valuable benefits for all third-party trackers and GDPR for publishers and brands. It was acquired by LiveRamp in April 2019. Let's begin!
1: Hi team, how are you?
2: Hey, hi. good morning. Very well. And you?
1: I'm good, thanks. It's it's a afternoon, late afternoon here, but yeah, you are based in the Netherlands, I believe.
2: Yes, I'm uh, from Amsterdam.
1: Awesome. There's a lot there's a lot happening in in Netherlands, Belgium, so a lot of interesting tech publishing solutions out there. So, I'm really excited to speak to you because we're particularly speaking about Uh, GDPR and and privacy management. So uh, just before we delve into the topic, I'd love you to just provide our audience a bit of background about yourself and and just what you guys do and and talk about the recent acquisition that you guys also
2: were involved in. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. So yeah, my name is Tim Guinan. I've been working in programmatic advertising for over 10 years. Uh, It wasn't even called programmatic uh, back then. And we were struggling to find names for it. But uh, in the last 10 years, I've been uh, thinking and speaking on stages about like, data-driven marketing and advertising, and what are the opportunities and how are we going towards personalization. And in the, in the last years, I got slightly frustrated with the fact that, uh, okay, so we have all this technological capabilities. But if I go online and I use an app or I use a website, the experience is not that great. And that's one of the ideas behind Factor, like how can we create better experiences? And once you start diving down, it's more, there is a lot of data, but it doesn't mean that the right data is there. And that's when GDPR came into play for us, and not so much as a threat, but more as an opportunity. We saw it as, okay, if consumers actually, they get these rights, you know, they can access their data, delete it, view it, take it with them, complain about it. That actually means that they're going to take more control of their data. Better control of more control over data also means better data for brands and publishers. Those were kind of the two takeaways before we started Factor.
1: Understood. Um, And just with you know with Factor um, and now that what's the company again that you guys were acquired by recently?
2: Cold. So Factor was recently acquired by LiveRamp. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, LiveRAM is a very large uh, player in the identity, uh, in the, the in the marketing identity space, and they actually they approached uh, us. Uh, we we knew them all along because we had similar initiatives running. Uh, so we started experimenting with blockchain. They had a, a blockchain project running, and they were looking at ways how to solve identity. And we always knew from the beginning that uh, consent and like permission that ties in very uh, closely to identity. And so we got in touch with them, and uh, conversations went very well at the first moment. Everything, uh, we had the same vision, and we were aligned very quickly. And uh, they made us an offer, and uh, we got really excited. The more we engaged with them, the more excited we got. And so uh, about four weeks ago, uh, we announced the acquisition and we've been very busy integrating ever since.
1: Nice. Uh, is it, what was your size of your team before you joined LiveRamp?
2: So we started the company two years ago. And in those two years, we signed about 34 clients and we grew the, we grew the team size in Amsterdam to uh, 11 people. And then we have about seven engineers in Serbia that we work with. Very nice.
1: It's it's something that it's fairly niche. I mean, do you agree with that opinion that for in the publishing con- context, identity and consent management, is that? do you think that's a very niche area or do you think that's a, I know that with everything that's going on, everything's going online and just um, in, in general, the scheme of things, identity and security management is a bigger technology issue. But how about, what do you think in terms of the publishing space?
2: Yeah, actually, maybe it looks niche. And when we started, we were afraid and we wouldn't want to end up in a niche. But and it's also different geographically. Like if we're in Europe, it's absolutely not a niche. It's a, it's a key requirement like for the, the, the GDPR. But what we discovered along the way is that when we started integrating with the first clients is that they don't have a lot of control about which vendors are on the page and who's collecting data there. They don't have a lot of control in, sending across a signal like are you allowed to do this or this and what we also figured is, is that if you do this properly like you, you, you're pretty much in control of how ty- or how the uh, uh, sites and apps are, are loaded in and which tracking uh, uh, technologies come after that so eventually we look at it as this way so uh, Consumers across the world. At one point, they will all have to make decisions before they enter and before they're allowed to see the content that they're trying to read, view, or whatever. And from that perspective, it's it's really not a niche. Like if you look at it, every app and every site uses one form of tracking, one way or another. And it can be for advertising, it can be marketing automation, it can be for personalization. And they're going to have to be uh, transparent about how they do that, with which vendors they work. They're going to have to provide some more some controls to users. And from again, from that perspective, you're, basically every website and app for us was an opportunity. And that's not a niche.
1: Definitely. I think it's still very much underutilized. I mean, I guess me being, from, being in Australia, you sort of see that as a, a feature that you need to put onto your website. But... I guess it's it's very
2: underestimated here. So, also it was the same here in Europe, and it's the same right now in uh, the United States, where uh, in California they will have the uh, CCPA, which is a new privacy law. There, it, it, it much less relies on on an uh, opt in, but you have to make full disclosures on what you're doing. You have to provide a opt out, which basically means do not sell my personal data. And from an integration perspective, it's, it's not a little piece of technology that you put on the website and it works because how web technology works is that you don't really control a, a, a third party script calling another third party script that happens uh, outside of your control. And so we started developing, for example, we, we, we had to uh, build a tag manager into our platform so that we could hold back uh, firing certain tags so before the proper consent uh, is, is given. But if you're and doing that, means- that, what's the
1: impact yeah. of, I, I know that you, um, for publishers that gives them more control, it gives them the control back, but if a third party vendor has set up a system you know, like, like marketing automation tools or um, software that requires that process, otherwise it's not going to work, then what's that going to, what impact is, is that going to bring on to publishers?
2: Well, it's a really tricky one, but uh, take uh, YouTube videos, for example. Like, There's a very legitimate reason why you want to have them on, because it provides a better experience to your users. What you don't know is what kind of tracking comes along with that video. Google obviously offers choices around it, There are also other players. Uh, uh, Twitter, for example, you have to click, uh, okay, um, I I agree that uh, Twitter will will track me somehow, whatever, before you play a video uh, that's embedded on, on another page. And it's this type of external capabilities or external features features that you're going to have to arrange consent for somehow and that can be done either by the owner of that third-party technology or as the website owner you arrange that on yourself the other part is where let's say you work with a five or six vendors for your advertising monetization these five or six vendors they also rely on several other vendors and they rely on other vendors as well so now it becomes a process thing like Okay, you can include the first five six vendors in your vendor list, and you can ask consent for them. But uh, you have to make uh, arrangements on what they can do and what not. And uh, in GDPR, there are two defined roles for this. It's called a controller. A Controller defines means and purposes, and there's a processor who acts under the processor's uh, gui- Sorry, who acts under the controller's guidance. And all these uh, uh, arrangements these processes need to be put into a contract, which is called a data processing agreement. But there's a technological aspect of it, but there's also very much a a process and a legal aspect to it. And then I'm not even speaking about the uh, data privacy impact assessments, but there's a lot that you need to take care of. And what happened with GDPR is that uh, a lot of these publishers, they started looking at, okay, who's really on my website? Uh, Are they adding value or are they extracting value? Uh, Are they making sure? Are they directly paying me, or uh, are they being paid through someone else? Like they started thinking about, uh, you know, how much money gets lost in between? Is it worth that? Or I'll give you another simple example. It's like uh, dynamic creative optimization. You don't directly have a relationship with the vendor, but you absolutely benefit from uh, these better-targeted or more relevant ads. And that meant also that they had to engage, publishers had to engage more with their agency partners. They had to uh, look at, you know, which vendors do we use? Why do we use them? And then there's the issue of of, of cookie syncing, where a lot of third parties are involved. And there's a lot of, I would say, involuntary cookie syncing. I'll give you an example. Uh, Quite some ad tech vendors are not active here in the Netherlands, uh, but they're still syncing cookies here. So, so what's the value of that then? Uh, it's, it's more a technological uh, mechanism that uh, allows them to do cookie-sinking, but there's no business value to it. So would you ask consent for it then? And then these are the type of questions that we saw a lot in the last two years. And if you look at how privacy laws are evolving, uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to uh, expand with a global uh, scope. And, and that was also part of the rationale behind the acquisition. LifeRamp works with a, a lot of uh, big clients. They are very. Uh, they need to be very careful with their data. Uh, they want to activate it in the proper way. Uh, and there's with all the privacy laws, it becomes a very complex thing to manage. And you you can no longer do that by uh, with manual processes. And the technology we build enables them to do that more dynamically. Understood.
1: And I think this might, for new publishers or small to medium publishers, which don't have that much technical ability, because I I believe, you know, with with Factor and and with LiveRack, you guys are working more with more bigger publishers and they sort of have the internal capabilities in some regard. But for smaller publishers, how much of this of a barrier is that for them to continue publishing? And and what are we maybe overcomplicating? this JVR process, GDPR process for consent management collection?
2: That's an interesting question. So I can tell you how we solved it for our smaller and and uh, medium-sized clients is that we provide a managed service to them. Um, But one step back is that digital advertising was already complicated. Programmatic advertising was already complicated for these types of publishers and even these types of brands. And... uh, so we try to help them. We navigate through their systems. And in a lot of cases, we actually just got access to a tag manager and they were like, please just set it up for us. And, and that was interesting. It was just funny as well, but we we're like, okay, so it, it's not that easy to solve this problem. And then if you look at the larger media companies, uh, even there, it, it's not an easy problem to solve. Um, I'll give you an example that uh, within, uh, comp- within uh, publishing companies, very often, the commercial department uh, gets the blame for uh, putting trackers up on the website or whatever. And then it turns out that the uh, editing teams they would install uh, like buttons like uh, from several companies that would also include tracking. and so there's there's not one culprit here, and it, in a lot of cases, it was very hard to figure out uh, who's responsible for what. And in, in some other cases, it turned out that a junior trafficker could just put anything on the website that they wanted. And very often, someone would walk to their desk and say, hey, can you put this on the website? And that was done without questions asked. And all of these things, that's rapidly changing.
1: So let's elaborate more on the state of state of the, state of the um, privacy and consent management, um, I guess, arena, for better, lack of a better word. Um, so- You know, from from my memory and from reading articles, I I believe initially, I think the major major legal push around consent management was from Europe GDPR. That was implemented. Then we saw a lot of publishers sort of, even particularly from the US, they started blocking users from actually visiting their site because they weren't equipped to handling that. Um, And I think there's also, you know, solutions coming out. Uh, So obviously, Factor and you guys came out and, there's a lot of measures put in place now to help with those bigger publishers and, and publishers in general to manage that. And then I think there's ad blocking as well, where some people were trying to monetize, come up with solutions around monetizing around that using ad blocking or something like that. And, you know, like you said, now there's the, the legislation, le, uh, legal push in California for consent management. Is there anything else that we've missed out on, on where things are up to today, in global yeah. or from what you know?
2: I think one of the biggest, uh, I would say, transformational changes is that eventually you're looking at choice. So you need to offer choice to your users, to consumers. And there's going to be some sort of gateway before you access content or products or an e-commerce environment or whatever. And in, in the case of digital publishing, it's, uh, are you going for subscriptions? Are you going for uh, a, a advertising model? Are you going for both? And, and how do they interoperate? So if you look at uh, choice, uh, what I see most of the discussions around are, uh, there's, a, there's something called a cookie wall, right? You have to accept before you can access the content. And several data protection authorities are saying uh, that's not allowed. There needs to be some sort of choice. And if that choice is a subscription model or like a a, a pay-to-play, that's fine. And I think a lot of publishing companies are struggling with, okay, how does that look? and uh, Do I have to have a subscription model? Will there be meta subscriptions, especially if you look at the smaller to medium-sized publishers? Uh, can they command a subscription on their own or do, you, do they need to part of a group of uh, other publishers that run their own subscription and uh, you know like what happened uh, when Spotify became bigger and bigger that there was just one platform where you could access all the world's music except for a few labels But and I, I see a similar development in digital publishing and uh, I don't see a lot of really innovative ways yet how to combat this uh, this problem but basically back to my original point so um if you're gonna either pay like money or you're gonna pay with your data and accept advertising i think those are ultimately the two choices and then you end up in this value exchange where uh is it clear for the user what they're getting in both scenarios and is it worth uh, is it worth? is that worth it to them
1: so there's, I think two things came from my mind from this. So how about for those people who are very fundamental in, in that principle saying that content and information has to be free and accessible. What's your thoughts on that, the first thing? And then actually let's go with that, sorry. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts around yeah.
2: that? I have a lot of thoughts about that. And uh, I would say these people do not run businesses for one. Uh, there's no such thing as free. And uh, we need to let that notion go. There is transparency, though, so I want to be able to choose how I consume that content, and there's a certain freedom to that. But making information freely accessible and and content and services that's just not sustainable at all. Like, how would you innovate? How would you build a better web if there would be no resources available to do so? And uh, I, I guess that that's it. So. Free? No, not possible. And there's no such thing as free. Eventually, you become the product yourselves. But there needs to be choice and transparency.
1: Understood. Okay, so I guess um, if that's pretty much the state of play, then let's move on to pretty much, let's offer our audience and listeners really practical of uh, tips and sort of ways of, you know, making sure that the consent is up to scratch and the GDPR is up to scratch. So What are the fundamental things when you speak with clients? What do you say
2: to them that they have to have? What they have to have is a strategy around vendor management. So that's usually how we start. So we we start looking at who's currently on the website, who adds value, who doesn't. Then we start looking at how do you want to arrange, uh, like it's called the welcome screen. Uh, How do you want to make people to make their decision? There are usually several layers, so we need to make a decision on that. Then we start with the styling. So uh, we, we deliver a, a user experience like UI out of the box. But we also offer a headless version. That means that they can go absolutely crazy in and they can make it fit in completely with their own style. We have many great examples of that. And we also actually see that if the, the, the company that we work for puts in a lot of effort in the UX, uh, that really translates into higher opt-in rates and, Uh, Less users uh, uh, reaching out to them saying, "You know what? I cannot do my settings properly," or I don't know, tweeting about this is not compliant. And then we start looking at the integration. uh, Like, do you want to have a a conditional access to the website, which means uh, there needs to be a choice needs to be made before content becomes available, Uh, or do you want to go for a free choice? And then how uh, you know, like, obviously everyone starts with an accept all button. Uh, but in many cases, that just doesn't work. So how you're going to arrange that? And then the after uh, the of vendor selection is made, uh, we include them into the CMP. Uh, I would say on average, a, a company uh, s- the amount of cylinders got, uh, they the the amount of vendors they select is usually between forty and sixty. So so that's still quite a lot. Uh, and then you that's need effective. to start. T- and Well, it's actually, like, there's a, there's a framework from the industry organization, IAB. It's yep. called the IAB and Consent Framework. Uh, if you look at the amount of vendors that are in there, uh, it's, let's say it's about 500. Uh, and we saw that in the beginning. The people who integrated the, the framework, they would just ask consent for 500 vendors. And when I was speaking to data protection authorities, they were like, how can you speak of informed consent when you're asking something for 500 companies? And that was a really fair point. And that's also in in the Netherlands we started developing a code of conduct. We do that in uh, in alignment with the uh, Dutch Data Protection Authority. Uh, But it it also covers stuff like for how many vendors can you still speak of informed consent? And I agree, 50 is a lot. But if you start looking at it, uh, usually that's also the amount of uh, companies that are actually adding value. In, in, to that publisher to that brand but if you then move more to the technical perspective we start putting the tags on the page and then it becomes uh, tricky because uh, in an ideal world uh, all tags uh, are, are set up properly and perfectly uh, that's never the case so there are tags in the tag manager there are tags on the page the header and the footer so you have to reorganize the way things are loading and uh, that's actually quite complex uh, Um, That usually takes uh, a few weeks, Uh, and then when everything is set, um, where the the technology goes live, then you uh, enter a world of uh, browser differences, Uh, but we became pretty good at managing that. It's also pretty new to our customers, so we learn uh, learn jointly. Understood. Um, So, yes, in terms of the technical implementation, since
1: you've spoken about it, so how would so once we go through that consent process, and I know you can potentially use ID framework, but you get the consent process in the, in place, uh, sorry, um, collected from the clients. How does the implementation work? Is it just simply, you said, uh, I think you said header uh, putting a dynamic script in the header. Um, is that as simple as that, or uh, using your tag a tag and that's it? Or is there any other things that they have to implement?
2: No that's pretty much it. So you um, you, uh, we, you developed a, a, a platform. you uh, uh, create your own CMP in there. You add your logo, your styling, your content, you uh, go for all the settings that we offer. And that generates a piece of code. That code gets uh, put in the header. and then it kind of depends on whether you use a tag manager or not. Uh, but we have two uh, ways of operating here. Uh, either our tag manager creates events uh, into your tag manager or our tag manager directly releases the tags or the add-ons onto the page. And usually it's a combination of things. But in in essence, it is as simple as putting a script on the page, but then you need to start to think about all the settings and uh, what the uh, outcomes are of those settings in a live environment.
1: How long does it usually take to get the setup completed? Uh,
2: Let's say between five minutes and uh, four months. That's a big difference. Um, yes.
1: <laughs> what what makes that big difference happen? I guess is that pretty much a vendor, a number of vendors, or is there just having having to go back
2: and it's a back and forth. It's it's a number of vendors. It's the number of tags that are on a page. Uh, look, just a few days ago, I was at a publisher and we did this analysis, and they figured out okay, there is still a, a a tag there from ten years old. We don't know what it does anymore. We should clean it up uh like you enter you you, uh, you you have to deal with stuff like this but the, the bigger the publisher is the more complexity there there is and often they have several websites and they take this also as an opportunity to streamline the experience across all the websites at once so it's it's much more than just gdpr they're also reorganizing the way they are doing tagging on the website It's it's actually we didn't expect to be part of that, uh, but that's I would say we learned a lot from that from those processes.
1: And how do you deal with clients who say that they have those unknown tags that someone has just implemented, you know, ten years ago, for example? How do they usually address it? Do they just sort of let it drop and see what happens, or what's the particularly for those small publishers who are hearing about this, uh, listening to this from bigger Getting your experience from the larger publisher realm, what? how do they usually manage this?
2: Well, usually they start taking the time. First, they look internally like, who put this on? What's the purpose of it? Is that still valid? Do we have a contract? Do we need to get a contract? But these are the immediate questions. And in most of the cases, you cannot directly answer those questions. So that means the tax will be taken offline for now. Uh, but in the like part of our managed services, also that we go through it with the client. And we uh, we uh, let me rephrase it. We go through it with the client, uh, and we check what should be there and what shouldn't be there. <laughs> but part of that is also appointing uh, a person who becomes responsible for allowing tags on the website or not. It Can be also be multiple people depending on the company side. But you need to have a little process checklist like. Uh, before you put tags on a, uh, on a website or add an SDK to an app or whatever. Uh, so it's a process thing uh, that needs to be looked at very carefully. But the short answer is uh, usually these tags uh, end up being taken away from the pages.
1: And what are some common mistakes you've seen today people have done, even though they've implemented or maybe during the implementation process that publishers have done? And to how, how, um, how can they avoid that?
2: I would say we've had instances from uh, putting the CMP in the footer, for example, completely defeats the purpose because we need to be the first thing that's loaded onto the page because right? the uh, consumer will make their decision. And from there, uh, choices about which tags are being rendered and then the monetization can happen. If you call the CMP uh, in the end, the chance is really big that the user already navigated away from the page before you were actually able to monetize. Uh, that those impressions so that, that's a uh, uh, that was a common mistake when we just started right now I would say the entire the challenge around conditional firing and, and loading of tags uh, I would say that's the most common mistake I think a lot of publishers also the smaller and mid-sized ones they think they're going to work with the they they, they, uh, they want to work with the IB transparency Consent framework, they install the tag on the page and then they think that everything will uh, figure out by itself. And the reality is that it really doesn't work that way. So just putting the tag on the page uh, only solves the problem. Well, it doesn't even solve the problem because you have a lot of companies uh, collecting personal data without having the proper consent signal.
1: How about I mean, I know you guys are using tags, but what about those solutions out there that are using? like for example, people are using WordPress, they're using plugins to manage this. These, what are your thoughts around that?
2: Um, that it's a nightmare. Uh, so the WordPress by itself is, is amazing, but uh, a lot of different plugins have very different results on the page. And what you see is that uh, once we have uh, clients that have uh, any way of, of uh, WordPress, any form of WordPress on the website, we usually end up rewriting the code uh, in, in quite a bit of the uh, pieces there um, so it, we, we have a WordPress plugin uh, it works, but uh, the interoperability with other plugins is usually uh, very poor understood in general though with
1: with with going through this process has it have you seen any improvements in site speed or I mean I know obviously with with going through this process there might be publishers are finding irrelevant tags that are no longer there and maybe that's going to help improve their overall site performance. But in terms of performance-wise, just in general, have you seen, because in the way they've grouped things, it's helped improve the site speed or performance in general?
2: I would love to say yes, but I don't have any hard data on that. Uh, I, I, but let's look at it from this way. Cleaning up the website is always good. Conditionally triggering tags is, 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 is good. Uh, but we also lose a lot of uh, we so like we do deferred loading, uh, asynchronous loading. There's a lot of technological smart ways w- how you can clean up a, a, or how how to make the loading experiences better. Whether this entire exercise led to faster pages, I can't say.
1: That makes sense. I know that's that's a very needle in the haystack question. It's very broad, but I just thought I'd ask anyways. The other thing that you know which is probably from implementation perspective and just getting on new vendors moving forward does do you think that this creates a hesitation to bring on new vendors and and it doesn't impact the ability of publishers to innovate if they find a new solution out there
2: no i wouldn't say it definitely so the answer to your first question is absolutely so it's harder to get onto the page but then again it it was always hard like if you uh if you, if you want to have your pixels included on a brand website you had to go for several processes that was different on the publisher side like any type that generates revenue was in eligible candidate to be put online that really changed so it, that became harder does that change the ability to innovate uh, absolutely not because you can still include these uh uh and these vendors but there's just a certain process that you have to go for it used to be like a data processing agreement uh, it needs to be included into the CMP. But once these things are done uh, and you have permission from the user to uh, to do this, you're good to go. Makes sense.
1: I guess it's traditionally it's always been hard for new vendors or new solutions to come on to publish a site anyway. So it's just make, so, make sure it's more of a compliant
2: process. Um, yeah. And you can overcomplicate compliance, obviously. Uh, but I would say that the clients that we've worked with so far they they have this piece figured out pretty well.
1: Understood. And have have you? Can you share any case studies, or are there any examples of publishers that are, you know, using GDPR in a smart way or consent management in a smart way to help monetize their audience?
2: Sure. I would think. Uh, yeah, there are several. Let's see which one. Uh, maybe I'll take uh, Zuber. It's a uh, it's a travel website with recommendations and. And uh, they also have a weather website. So you can uh, go there and you can see what the weather is, or the rain is coming, or the forecast for the next five days in Miami. Um, Tim, was that Zuma? dot uh, No, Zuber, Oh, Zuva. Uh, Yeah, but they've they've done a really cool implementation on their weather website, and uh, they created their own UI there, and they created like completely on the side of the website, they created uh, clouds, like, uh, so it's rainy, uh, rainy means not a lot of cookies, if it's half sunny, it means like uh, uh, functional cookies, uh, plus some analytics. And then they have like a full sunny uh, uh, experience when you accept all their vendors. And then behind that screen, there's another screen where you can go into the uh, vendor selection. And I think if you approach it like, completely in the style of your own uh, property uh, and you explain it well, I think that's a very good use case on how to do this uh, well. Uh, another good use case, but this is not specific related to one client, is that um, they use a, a delayed trigger, which means that uh, you know, in, in vendors make changes and, and basically every change that's being made, you need to re-trigger uh, the consent question. Uh, and what we as, a, as digital people think is that any setting or any change in a setting should be reflected immediately. Uh, but if you look in the offline world, like if you do an opt-out request, that can usually take seven days. And so we started building in these triggers. Uh, so if there are changes to a vendor list, we're not going to trigger the wall immediately, but we're gonna, uh, or we're not going to trigger the experience immediately, but we're gonna do that every twenty-four hours or every seven days. I think if you start thinking about what it means from a consumer perspective, you'll actually have the best experiences, also on a commercial level.
1: It seems that it seems that there's an opportunity to use uh, consent. Management or consent collection with the paywall strategy. From what it seems, so that that other example you mentioned was that they set up triggers, and essentially they would, um, when the certain event happens, then you can show that consent to access that content. Is that correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's correct. We we actually we have a partnership with ContentBox. It's a German company, yeah. and so uh, they offer a payment solution, like a subscription solution. And uh, we partnered with them pretty early, but it's exactly around this point. So uh, it's about choice. So uh, does a consumer want to pay? And doesn't want? Then they don't want to be tracked. That's fine. Uh, but on the other side, if they want to go through the uh, consent experience. And they switch off everything. The 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 demo version we built with them actually takes the consumer back to the paid version. So th- it's about how you organize that in a, in a smart and efficient way, and without overcomplicating it for your user. Is this a new marketing automation? Well, it's, I wouldn't say it's marketing automation. I, I think it's a smart use of of uh, of it. It's to companies collaborating and building a product that makes sense. It's not so much marketing automation. I think it's very, first of all, it's very strategic. Uh, am I going to give real choice to my uh, users? Am I going for a subscription model? And then the second question is, how much should I charge? Am I going to do a paper article? i Am going for a monthly subscription? There are a lot of different ways of doing so. Um, and in, in in the middle, there is making sure that someone registers because a lot of consent-related issues are still around cookies. And uh, cookies are not very persistent; they're not very stable. Yeah. Uh, and that might be good for some things, but it also creates for terrible uh, it creates terrible experiences because you keep you have to keep uh, so you have to uh, give up the same settings over and over. So, if you make someone register with their email addresses and you uh, confirm, uh, then you have more stable identifiers. More stable identifiers means better monetization opportunities.
1: Absolutely, I guess the only reason why I asked that was, and not to play, uh, trying to play a bit of the bizarre advocate here, but it seems that you know you might be pushing someone to make a choice, right? You either have to agree to read the content, and you know sometimes you know there's been a. A sort of uh, habit of a culture being created in the past 10 years where there's been a lot of clickbait happening, so people would naturally, if there's something that tra- sees their eye, which is appealing, they might be clicking on it or maybe you know, entering their details sort of passively. Do you think that that might be any potential concern if you want to use it as strategically as you mentioned? Because it is very smart. I'm just trying to be mindful of if there's, a, if there's going to be any ramifications to the publisher.
2: Interesting thought. Uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure, but when I think about clickbait, I, I also think about you know grocery stores. Like whatever uh, works best for the grocery store is uh, you know and uh, positions the the most prominently. So it, it's more a commercial way of. I guess it's, well, it's, like it's commercial said optimization. That. Yeah, but there's a risk to it, absolutely. Uh, but then again we can talk about information yes but in, in a lot of cases it's commercial content brought to you by commercial companies there's not a lot of uh, altruism there and I, I think as consumers we need to be more mindful of that uh, at least it needs to be clear and you know and if it's clear then you can start thinking about the value exchange uh, and then it's it's a choice Do I participate in it or not
1: Definitely. No, I think, I think that makes sense. Um, Tim, so let's speak about reporting and, um, and metrics. I guess that's, that's key. So what are some of the key metrics and, and reporting standards people can use to better manage this and, and not create having the need to create additional dashboards to manage user consent?
2: Yeah, um, so, so we have reporting into the, in the platform. And we report on several metrics um, like the, the consent opt-in, the consent opt-out, uh, partial consent, like if people uh, make some, uh, some changes, like for example, they don't want to be, I don't know, they don't want to have uh, advertising, but measurement is fine or something like a combination like that. And we report on that, uh, so, but we also stream, we have the possibility we can stream all the events in real time to a solution uh, of your own choice. Uh, we don't really care about which dashboard you use, whether it's Google Analytics or something else. But I think it's besides the reporting. So all the data is there. That's not the issue. We also we uh, in our um, software we create an audit ID, which actually is is uh, the consent status from a specific user with a timestamp and vendor list and the versions attached to it. So there, there's a lot that you can uh, see, and uh, but most uh, like the, the audit ID is more for proof of consent. Uh, and that's more a compliance requirement. But if you look at a UX, uh, if, you, if you look at the UX challenges, I think how you organize the notice on the website or within the app uh, makes all the difference in whether a consumer opts in to that experience uh, or opts out. And uh, we've seen many different use cases. And uh, like I stated before, I think companies that took that very seriously and turned that into their own experience have the best results. Uh, if I look at, for example, standards cases where there's an accept all button, but not a reject all. Of the, like at, at, at first view, there's an accept all. I would say that over 90% of people just clicks on that. Uh, it doesn't mean that they will never revisit their settings, but at, at first glance, they're just accessing that content. They're clicking on accept.
1: So the main metrics, like you mentioned, is just pretty much the opt-in of that and then sort of the the change of the opt-in, I guess, how the experience. Is there any way we can, is there any way you can actually, just like how in analytics solutions, you can create funnels and look at how the user journey goes. Is there a way you can sort of plug into that and say, well, okay, maybe the reason why there's been a higher bounce rate is that there's been less people, maybe they wanted to change their, how, their access or maybe they wanted to, Maybe in this period, there's more people that opted into this content because they found this interesting. Is there a way to further contextualize the user data that way?
2: It's hard to say because it's very different per implementation. It might be, for
1: example, that maybe one of the vendors is is a newsletter subscription tool. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, you need to get consent. And, and a lot of those newsletter solution providers offer pop-ups. You, you can create pop-ups to encourage which triggers a call to action to sign up for newsletter updates. So um, obviously you need the consent form in there, but can is there a way potentially that when you're setting up this type of campaigns for a specific type of content that you can see, for example, yes, maybe we, we've gotten more subscribers because people opted in more. Even though you can see that on the newsletter solution subscriber tool, or maybe it's integrated with your dashboard, that you can also just say, okay, people have given us consent. So maybe because they've given us this consent, for future campaigns, we can create something similar, or we can create a, a series of a, a long feature series of interviews, for example, around this topic.
2: Yeah, and that's all true. And uh, it's actually in the, 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 the we're working on reimagining how email consent works uh, right now at the moment. Uh, so this is not something that's uh, deployed yet. So I don't have actual data on it. But we figure there are a few use cases that we can do a lot better. Uh, especially also with with email uh, you know you cannot really execute uh, javascript very well so we started thinking about how would that look differently but we haven't implemented it yet so i think the the, the client use cases still need to unfold uh, which is something that will probably happen in the next few months but from if you, you think about ab testing and uh, i think that's that should be a given like anytime you deploy anything, especially if it's so critical to your business, I would very much test everything uh, and, and try different things and, and use uh, different groups. And b- before I, I nail that final piece, and something as simple as uh, changing the way you message, like something very simple, like we use cookies, or hey, some of us collect some personal data. Like there's a lot of different approaches there that lead to different results.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um. So I guess it's it's a watchy space sort of thing. So that's yeah, <laughs> it's a development. That's okay.
2: It. it, it but uh, maybe we conclude is it's it's not as niche as as uh, as, as you think. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's
1: not. It's, it's it's a lot. It's a lot bigger as as you mentioned. So no, I appreciate that. I just thought yeah, we worth asking. So with that, I guess you know you you're very much at the moment focusing on the uh, the merge. What are some are you guys still going to be? Uh, from what I saw from your website, you mentioned that you're going to be under the LiveRamp name now. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, we no, we're under the LiveRamp uh, brand. brand. So uh, LiveRamp is yeah is our uh, parent company now. Actually, actually, everyone kind of likes the Factor brand and what it stands for, so we decided to keep it uh, separate. Okay. Um, so we run our own organization out of Amsterdam, Serbia. We have our own resources. Uh, um, and we have our own targets and goals. And everything is in alignment. Uh, and in lifetime, works with many great large clients that we would have never gotten access to. And yeah. we invested quite a lot in our product, and uh, a lot more than we did in, in sales and marketing. And that resulted into this enterprise platform that we're uh, not only super proud of, but it also really sets us apart. Uh, and, and now we get to speak to new type of clients that, uh, you know, like I said, we didn't have access to before. And it's a different a challenge. It's a different game. Uh, and as far as from a solutions perspective, uh, LifeRamp uh, does uh, identity resolution uh, data onboarding. That's so in line with uh, what we were trying to solve uh, on the consumer side uh, that 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 match is just there. and that's also why the process went relatively smooth.
1: So uh, what are your plans around that, given that you you guys are aligned? is it more of a integration with your platforms together? what's what's the future plan for DC at least for factor? Yeah so
2: we're building like I said at the beginning, consent and identity they they cannot go without each other. So uh, we want to integrate that more closely, but basically what you're seeing is that uh, as a consumer, we want to give you the best possible experience when you give permission uh, and uh, transparency in who uses your data and what's the value that you get back from it, what's the value to the brand? So these are things that we want to solve. So it needs to be super clear. uh, As a user, these are my settings, this is what I'm sharing, and this is what I'm getting back for it. That's one. But Lightroom has some uh, really interesting products that... Uh, we can uh, integrate within the CMP. Uh, there is, uh, from a client perspective, uh, uh, LifeRamp's identity link is in, is becoming an optional feature in the CMP. So you can simply toggle it on uh, and you can enjoy the uh, LiveRAM benefits. So it's like a cross-integrating uh, platform. Uh, and you know, again, from a use case perspective, it already makes total sense.
1: Awesome. So I guess a lot of the cost integration is going to make up most of the, the the sort of efforts that you guys are moving forward for this year. How about in terms of yourself professionally? Um, are you? Is there any ambitions that you want to achieve within the industry, or are you, you focus on more just trying to grow the, the business and and the sort of manage this transition period?
2: No, I, I think my personal ambition is to make. Factor and 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 the advertising ecosystem a lot more consumer centric because it, it feels kind of like it, it, it's scary, but it leads to so many uh, good things, and uh, that's also a lifeline. I see a a trend in in, in the thinking like, yeah, we need to become more consumer centric. Yes, consumers don't know about us, and but maybe they they should. Or uh, and and that's the case for for many of these vendors. Their intentions are super good like they're trying to solve problems they're trying to i don't know provide relevant content relevant advertising to users so i would say that the companies that take this very seriously have a very very good chance of becoming more consumer-centric and i would say that's one of the challenges that i really want to work very hard on, on, on establishing that that's awesome and just to
1: finish off, Tim, do you have any advice for people who want who want to start a martech platform or ad tech platform or any anything around you know getting ahead in the industry today?
2: Yeah, a lot of advice actually. That's a different podcast.
1: I guess um... it is, but I love to always finish off on that note just so we can personalize it a bit more. <laughs> it's actually
2: what's the one main. It's, one? It's... The one main
1: thing, I guess. Another know there's heaps. We can do another episode if you like. But yeah, there's a, a yeah, what's awesome the one main one? Yeah.
2: Yeah, just start and, and solve problems and the rest will come later. Yeah. I think if you really want to solve a problem, uh, then just start doing that.
1: Yeah, no that's that's really sort of solid advice because like you mentioned, you weren't hundred percent sure of it, but it's sort of everything came into place. So
2: yeah, the, but uh, right. there, there, that, that could be true in many other cases as, as well. Like the, the stuff that we did around tag management, we would have never foreseen that. And it became the most important feature of our, of our platform. And so, so when you start solving a problem, it will take you into a different direction. You'll see other problems. You might be able to solve them along the way. And that's how your business grows.
1: Absolutely. With that, uh, thanks, thanks for your time, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.